Alrighty, folks. Welcome to another BTN podcast. Craig is here. How are you doing, man? Doing fantastic, mate. <laughs> Good. <laughs> as always to find out. Great as always to find out. But it's the middle of the apocalypse still, so... Yes, yes, yes. It's getting... It's... Still a little bit fatigued. Mm-hmm. But we'll get, we'll get through it. We'll get through there, man. We'll get through there. Well, at least we think so. We'll ask. At least, we, yes, we'll find out right now <laughs> with our guest on the line right now. Uh, Richard Allen White. How are you doing, my friend? Uh, pleasure, pleasure to be here. Fantastic, man. Fantastic. So, uh, just to talk about how we got you on, I think we, we spoke to Kat. Uh, are you known Kat for quite a while? Uh, yes, uh, she is... Uh... She is on uh, on TikTok, and so I uh, my daughter got me to download the app, and so I started following her, and then I started my own little app, and you know <laughs> that kind of thing, and so uh, that's how I met her. Awesome, man! Awesome. So, well, uh, we done a podcast a while back with uh, with Kat, obviously about her, uh, her side side of things, yep. and we were hoping to get your side of things as well. That sounds great. Uh, so let me start this off with a disclaimer. Uh, uh, I, well, first I'll start off with who I am. So I am I am Dr. Richard Allen White III. I am an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte uh, in the Department of Bioinformatics and Genomics. I am also the CEO and chairman of Raw Molecular Systems Inc. Out of uh, also out of Concord, uh, North Carolina. None of the things that I'm going to discuss today represent. Uh, the feelings of either my company or the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. These are my personal, individual uh, opinions on uh, the virus. Uh, I am a PhD, um, computational and uh, synthetic molecular virologist. Uh, I've been working on viruses for the last two decades. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent, fantastic. That's the most in-depth yes uh, introduction we've ever had on this podcast. So that's awesome. <laughs> Great. Awesome, man. Awesome. So, so oh, on you go. If we can start off, because I don't, I, I've had a giggle, so I think I get the basics of the differences, but not the full depth of the difference between epidemiology and virology. Could you explain the difference? Uh, so, epidemiology is a broader field. Uh, Dr. Cat, epidemiologist, uh, who's now pretty famous on, on social media, uh, her job is more of trying to surveil and understand how disease spreads. Where it, and that could be any disease. That could be a protist, a protist, a disease caused by protists or a disease caused by bacteria. Um, it kind of the first kind of modern epidemiologist was uh, was a uh, was actually I think he was British actually, and he uh, noticed that people were drinking from the same you know pump down in Lower London and where they had a cholera outbreak. And so once he got people off the pump downtown London, uh, cholera stopped to spread because the source of uh, the cholera was fecal contamination of the public water supply and everybody was using that pump for water. And so they were drinking the cholera and stuff like that. So that was the first real modern epidemiologist. Obviously people that uh, quarantine is actually an ancient word. Uh, But... uh, you know, and so whereas a virologist differs from an epidemiologist is that a virologist studies viruses. We focus on uh, the infection, the replication, the genome, uh, the transcription, uh, the host response to viruses, uh, and we study the virus itself. Whereas an epidemiologist is uh, uh, uses a lot of statistics and biology 
as well as public health measures to stop uh, the spread of a, of a pathogen to become a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So that's the real clear-cut difference. Uh, yeah. One is studying virus. The other is studying how disease spreads. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly somebody asked earlier on, uh, like if it was some someone the same as Cart we were getting on. Yeah, and I sort of explained it the same way. It's like um, epidemiology is the sort of like the path of an epidemic, like how everything is affected with the actual virus and why. But uh, you're sort of studying the actual virus sort of thing. Yeah, right. And the response, and I mean, obviously. There are epidemiologists that are also virologists, so it's not mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. So you can have epidemiologists that are more general, ones that are more bacteria or protestin or fungal, you name it. But their their job is to understand uh, the flow and spread of disease. Mm-hmm. There was one thing you said as well, sorry, before <laughs> I'm just getting this in. Um, you said, and then we have like on the, uh, on the headline here that you're a... Uh, computational and synthetic virologist. Can you explain yeah. the differences like of those two things? Sure. So, um, so computational biologist is a biologist that basically uses, another word is commonly used a lot, is biophematician, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's the using biological information to infer information. Uh, computational biologist does biologist biocomputer. That's the simplest way to describe it. Okay. So a computational virologist is a biologist that studies viruses that uses a uh, computer or algorithm that uses computers and algorithms and uh, high performance uh, computing as well as uh, you know code in order to solve biological questions. Uh, now molecular biology and molecular virology is actually someone who studies the molecular mechanisms of the virus, the genome, the transcriptome, the proteome, and then a synthetic virologist is a person that uses engineering principles and molecular uh, biology in order to actually build, uh, you know, new tools or new ways to actually defeat viruses or new, new uh, uh, techniques. Or, I mean, I've heard of everything from people making batteries using bacteriophage and stuff like this. And so using engineering principles in molecular virology, Mm -hmm. uh, that's the difference between synthetic, molecular, and computational. (laughs) I understand that perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we we yeah. will we will understand all this on like the most basic level, as yes. you will understand, as you will know. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, a, a synthetic virologist is a virologist that uses engineering principles in molecular biology. Yeah, that's yeah. the simplest way to describe it. Perfect. Simple is easy for us. That's yes. Perfect. If you could uh, <laughs> dumb down to a significant level, <laughs> but th- this is what I like because, like, um, a guy that sort of uh, goes. That in depth, with like you can answer questions properly. You can ask, answer to, questions like, properly, as like because us, I, I see on like the news channels and stuff, what people tend to do is get a healthcare worker in to explain some of the certain things, or and, a GP, somebody, or a GP, or yeah. somebody like that. Nobody ever really concentrates on getting like somebody that's again that's like in depth with the work that you guys are doing. Yeah, you know, uh, I think you've hit it nail on the head. We need to do better at literacy in science. We've talked for. 30 years on how to increase literacy in, uh, for reading and writing uh, and mathematics. But I think it's, I think we are ripe uh, for a time to increase general scientific literacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the only way we can prevent us repealing back to a dark age when people didn't believe in science and they thought, you know, diseases spontaneously occurred is to have everyone increase their general scientific uh, understanding of things. 
uh, to where we can have, where we can't have, where we can have logical conversations between whether or not, you know, whether or not something exists, but whether how to defeat something. And mm -hmm. so I think that's what we're suffering right now. I think one of the biggest annoying things is that people not believing in the science now. You've never seen these people at like high school and stuff learning about different like scientific aspects and just going, no, I don't believe any no, of this. <laughs> so I don't think it. I don't think that's necessarily true. Mm. I think uh, that these skeptics have been around. These people that don't trust science have been around for a long time. There's many. Uh, you know, you can listen to Isaac Asimov or even Carl Sagan talking about it. What I think is that uh, because we have these very powerful social media platforms, is that misinformation can travel very very quickly. Yeah. And the algorithms uh, can actually, uh, you know, they promote some of this negative stuff. Uh, some, and so I think it's at, you know, it's obviously not at my level, but I think uh, we need to rethink about how to uh, filter misinformation better. Uh, because the most information travels faster and infects faster than this virus that we're working on, that we work on, right? Yeah. This is sort of a, I don't want to say dumb question. Because it's not a dumb question, but it's like nothing to do with the reason we've got you on the podcast. This is just my own personal curiosity about the level of science that you work at. Do you happen to know of people that are studying your level of science, but maybe in a different science like physics or uh, chemistry or something that have anti-science beliefs in different fields? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I have not personally... Uh, experience this, but there are, you know, kind of classical examples. Uh, there was the one professor, I believe at Berkeley, who thought that HIV didn't cause AIDS. Um, mm. So these people do exist. Yeah. Uh, they can be tend, they can be tend to be damaging. Uh, one of the classic examples uh, that started the whole anti-vaxxer craze was this, was this uh, physician named Andrew Wakefield, who wrote a paper in Lancet uh, that. Um, said that the MMR vaccine caused autism. Uh, however, it was later shown, you know, definitively that he cherry-picked his data and made up data, and he had a corporate interest in order to make a, 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 another vaccine to replace NMR, MMR because MMR is one of the most effective <laughs> vaccines we've ever had, the safest. And, you know, time and time again, uh, we've shown uh, through science that, you know, MMR is very, very safe. However, the idea... Uh, that vaccine causes autism still exists. And so it's very hard to curtail that idea, even with a mountain of evidence. And a lot of this has to do with, you know, various biases that we all learn about, confirmation bias, all this type of stuff. So um, again, it goes back to my original hypothesis is that we have to get scientific information into, pe into people's heads as soon as, as soon as they can handle it, you know? starting at grade school and really working on making robust scientific and engineering and STEM very, very early on. Because I think a nation that uh, invests in STEM is a nation that will succeed. I wonder, uh, I wonder if this... So, yeah. I, I wonder if this outbreak... So I wonder if the, with this outbreak, I wonder if there's like a worthwhile time of teaching like biology students and stuff, like a wee bits, like small amounts about like a... The dangers of viruses and stuff like that. I wonder if that's a worthwhile thing going at like high schools and stuff. You know, I I I think so, but I I I wish we could do it before something major happened. Yeah. Right. 
I, we need to be able to educate people generally of science very, very early on so where we can have more substantial debate on them. whether not that they, whether or not they exist or whether it hurts my pre-existing beliefs, but more on the fact that, you know, we have this deadly virus out there. Uh, we need to wear masks. We need to wash hands. We need to stay away. We need to distance. And that uh, it, we should be caring for people and um, being compassionate to people mm -hmm. more so than the, the irritation of wearing a mask or not being able to go outside. And I think uh, we need to have that mindset, at least in the United States uh, and, and other places, we have a, uh, we need to, we need to be able to get that across. Mm -hmm. so, so should we get into the actual virology questions? I think so. Aye, aye. Sure. Um, so you got somewhere you want to specifically start? Yeah, with? I want to start at the, sort of the basics. So where did oh, it come from? <laughs> well, I, should we start actually, right from there? Yeah, start there, aye. Like, <laughs> well, like, for how, sure, how it, came about. Uh, it came from... So for sure, uh, SARS-like viruses, these are beta coronaviruses, um, they came from bats. All the phylogenetic and evolutionary information uh, suggests they came from bats. And even looking at Bayesian analysis, uh, this strain uh, likely has been in the, in the body of a bat for upwards of 50 years. So it was naturally occurring in a bat, in the body of a bat. Uh, how it got transferred from the, from the bat to the human is unknown. That is still the missing piece. And there's been a lot of debate on whether, you know, in the case of SARS-1, we had a person who uh, had gotten it, we believe, from a, a civet, which is a kind of a small rodent-like raccoon-like creature that, that is farmed and raised and even caught wild in China in kind of the uh, – wild game markets they have in China. And the virus that was from the civet was very similar to the one that was in the person. And so the thought was it went from a bat to a civet to a person. However, we're not sure um, because it, there is some, this could be an event of convergent evolution uh, where the man got it from the bat first, gave it to the civet, or the civet gave it to the man. And so we're not 100% sure on SARS-1. Mm. So MERS is the Middle Eastern respiratory uh, virus that was found in kind of 09, I believe. And for sh and it seemed to have jumped from a bat to a camel to a person. And so it, at least with that uh, lineage of coronavirus, you see, it seems that you need a mixing host. So a host that has that where the bat virus jumps into another host that's mam mammalian, and then it gets, it, you know, learns how to infect a more complicated mammalian cell, and then it can transfer onto humans. But it's not so clear uh, between SARS-1 and SARS-2. Uh, the closest uh, relative of SARS-2 uh, is also from a bat, but it's only 96% similar, right, on a genetic level. And we found uh, this virus as well in pangolins and minks, and the pangolin viruses are only 91% uh, similar. So it's unlikely that it went from a human, uh, went from a bat to a pangolin to a human. And so that was the original hypothesis. And so... Uh, it could be very well that these viruses just jump into uh, organisms very, very quickly. I mean, we can see that a human can give it to something as complicated as a tiger or a gorilla or, you know, um, you know, dogs. A lot of the president's uh, Secret Service dogs had gotten COVID from Secret Servicemen. You know, it could be that it is a direct bat human transmission. However, we'll, we may not ever know. Um, and so that 
for sure. This is a bat. This is a virus that, you know, has found uh, a reservoir in bats. And so then it's somehow, because it's zoonotic, has transferred from bats. SARS-1 as what people would know as a SARS outbreak, and then SARS-2 would be COVID-19, right? That's correct. Okay, yeah. right. Yeah. Just just for people listening. So they, both, they... Yeah. so they both stand for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. That's what SARS stands for. Um, so when you hear the SARS outbreak, you hear, you think of 2002, 2004, right in there, right? Actually, yeah. I think it was 2002 is when it was identified. Uh, and then when you think of SARS-2, which is SARS-CoV-2, that is uh, the that is the virus, the name of the virus, and the virus obviously in uh, SARS is SARS-CoV-1 now because we found two different versions. Yeah. Uh, that's the original, and then uh, the, the disease is coronavirus viral disease 19, so 20, 2019. It's not they're not separate things. Mm-hmm. You hear a lot of. Uh, People say, oh, they're different things, and there's, you know, COVID-20 and all this stuff, and that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all these uh, different mutations and stuff that you keep hearing about as well. Like, yeah. uh, people... Can I ask a question before on you go on to that? Uh, so, just to deal with a conspiracy theory real quick, how do we know that uh, COVID-19 wasn't created by <laughs> yeah. uh, the Chinese government or whoever it was that they've decided... <laughs> Has that, yeah. that been decided, the conspiracy theory of, like, who actually made well, it I mean, yet? they'll have different... Illuminati, Chinese government... Yeah, yeah. Whoever. Freemasons. <laughs> yeah, like that, whoever yeah. they decide is important. Some, someone actually suggested so, to me that um, the NHS have something to do with this as well. Because they like being busy. Because they like being... Skin. Like, yeah. I, I don't know why, but... Yeah, they yeah. love it. They love having no money. They love uh, struggling. <laughs> so, I'll answer this in two different ways. Okay. Uh, I think uh, one of your... Uh, co-patriots John Oliver did a really good job of this on last week and tonight and uh, conspiracy fear theory fill holes into into uncertain situations so what do I mean by that so when you have an uncertain situation uh, people gravitate to conspiracy theories because it fills uh, it fills it basically allows them to uh, gain control of an uncontrollable situation. Yeah. But the reality is, is that certain that is many things are completely uncontrolled and completely unknown. But by saying, you know, one of these, you know, absurd conspiracy theories, it allows that 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 uncontrollable information to uh, that uncontrollable thing to have to gain control. And so I think that's why people gravitate to these things, and it's unfortunate. But we need to. We need to help people again cope with the unknown unknowns better. Yeah. Uh, and then again, you know, I think uh, I'm a huge proponent of education and allowing people to, you know, uh, not believe in the the phantoms and the ghosts of the past because they're not really there, right? Yeah. And unless you have evidence, true evidence, it doesn't exist. And so Carl Sagan does a very good job in fact checking, and there's a you can go online and read how it has a method actually to fact check pseudoscience and conspiracy theories, and it works still to this day. Um, and so the second part is how do we know? Well, um, the natural isolates that we have with the the variants of the stuff we sequence look like viruses that we see in nature. 
And so normally when you engineer something, you would have some bits of it that would show you that it has a piece of a vector or a piece of nucleic acid that is different or shouldn't be there. And so for all intents and purposes, um, and there's a brilliant paper in Nature called The Proximal Origin of uh, SARS-CoV-2. And it's, it's really great. Uh, and there is just no evidence for any kind of genetic manipulation of this virus that led to SARS-CoV-2. Um, uh, so, and it is, it is very unlikely. Um, and to do something de novo, where you basically use a computer to design a, a virus is just impossible with our current technology. It's absolutely impossible. I think it... So then the people will ask, they'll ask, hey, well, did they take something like SARS-1 and, and change it or mutate it to look a certain way to make it more deadly? And the answer is just no. There's just no, yeah, no. <laughs> and there's just more, there's just so much evidence and it just, you have to follow Occam's razor. Yeah. When you have so much evidence showing one direction you have to reject the other, the other information. Yeah. You just have to. You have to reject these conspiracy theories. I think I think somebody likened it to like a jigsaw a jigsaw puzzle. And the probably in the most basic sense, they likened the virus to like a, a jigsaw puzzle. If you had to go and check on these things, and the shapes weren't in, in like the perfect way, or they were like somehow like out of shape and stuff like that, that is how you would tell certain things have happened. Yeah, I'll probably explain that terribly. But... So, uh, you know, and the question then, you know, being a synthetic biologist is can we make viruses uh, in a lab? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we can make clones of, of viruses, but we're not building it from scratch. Yeah. That's just not possible. You know, nature uh, invents these things. Um, it does a pretty good job. <laughs> Way yeah. better. Yeah, it's, it's, it's had it's had four billion years of evolution to get it right. Yeah, you know. Uh, whereas, you know, we can we once we have a sequence, for example, we can build it from nucleic acids and stuff like that. But that's not the case here with SARS-CoV-2. This was a naturally occurring bat virus. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the obsession with conspiracy theorists of making the person in their conspiracy theory way more powerful than mm-hmm. they actually are. Like the 9-11 conspiracy theory, which unfortunately I fell for when I was a teenager, uh, gives the Amer- gives George Bush especially way, way more credit. <laughs> a man that struggled to get a quote on during uh, Donald Trump's inauguration. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I guess, you know, like it goes back to uh, what I said before, is that these conspiracies gravitate to them because they give answers to an uncontrollable and unknowable situation. Yeah. Uh, they confirm biases, right? That's the other one. Yeah. It, and they can confirm predetermined beliefs. And then, uh, you know, that it's this agency or that agency that's out to hurt me or do whatever. Uh, and then the other one is uh, kind of a more interesting one is this new effect like the Dunner-Kruger effect yeah. where it's like you don't know what you don't know. Right, and everybody falls into this. It's not just you know conspiracy theorists. Um, and I think, at least in the U.S., uh, there has been times where um, you know certain things were kept from the public to be found out later to be true. Um, and so I think that that you know triggers that type of uh, feeling 
sometimes. But at the end of the day, what we have to do is we have to educate better. Uh, and we have to communicate science better. Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse and a lot of these other folks like, you know, Dr. Cat and potentially even myself, uh, we have to get the idea of critical thinking and being able to think if that is correct or not and be able to, which is a harder thing for certain people, is to reject our predisposed beliefs. Yep. If there's data or evidence that says that you were wrong, you have to accept it. <laughs> you have to accept it. And it's okay. It's okay if you're wrong. And I think we have this this thing where if I'm wrong, I'm I don't have value or I don't have this or I don't have that. But I really think it, it, that people just have to say, you know, just say a person is wrong and yeah, sure it's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously there's other things that you shouldn't be doing, like being racist or all these other things. Yeah. But if you're wrong in your scientific assumption, it's okay. Yeah. Right? That's how we progress is that you reject your predisposed notion and then you find new hypotheses which allow you and society as a whole to move forward. Well, that, that's one of the things I enjoy most about life is being sort of blindsided with like new information. That's that's one of the things that sort of like keep me going a lot well, of the time. It fascinates me about science as well because it's, I mean, you don't really get it in politics where people accept they're wrong. Yeah. It's more in, in science. Mm-hmm. I guess the other thing is that we are, we have so much information. That is absolutely true. Uh, we have so many apps, you know, we have a device that in our hand that basically in the 1980s, you would have, you know, godlike potential, right? You have almost <laughs> all knowledge at the, at the hands, at your, at your fingertips, right? And so, you know, how do we, I think it comes back to potentially regulating and potentially having solutions that tackle misinformation. I think we have to get ahead of it now because <laughs> if we don't, if we don't stop it now, we could we could have, you know, dire consequences. I mean, uh, the attack on our capital is a perfect example of how misinformation can trigger events. Yeah. So we have to get our handle on this. So, so did you have? Oh, right. Sorry, right. okay. So, um, uh, what should we move on to next? I think. Um... So, so what? Is, but before we ask some of these questions, what is your um, expertise on the vaccine. On the vaccine, uh, I have never developed a vaccine. Uh, however, I, you know, understand adaptive innate immunity in viruses and how you would develop a vaccine. Uh, we also have a, uh, you know, I have very, I have lots of friends who develop vaccines in their career, uh, but I am not a vaccine expert per se. Okay, right. The questions that have been asked. Uh, should be easy enough to answer for for you, not for me, but mm-hmm. like for for you for the <laughs> level of knowledge you have in this situation. I don't think there'll be anything asked where you'd feel uncomfortable ask uh, answering it. Mm-hmm. So it should be fine. So should we go on a uh, some of the strains of COVID that have came out? The one from. The one that was apparently found in the UK and the Brazilian variant. Uh, do you know much about these? Do you know sort of the differences? Yeah. That one uh, we've been told could possibly be thirty percent more Is dangerous. It, uh, am I right? I don't want to. Say, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Thirty percent more uh, 
higher mortality from that one. Right. So this is what's been suggested. Uh, there has been a, a, Trivda, a Trivenad paper that you that the, the government of the British government has put out. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of real data in that paper, and so I'm not so sure. There was some thoughts that you know, if you look at 60 year olds, that it was like 13 to 10. Uh, I'm going to hold off on saying that it's more deadly. Um, however, there is a decent amount of information from its mutation spectrum in the S protein to suggest it could be more contagious. Okay. So, so uh, how I, do, uh, I would say, go ahead. How does a, how does a, a virus become more contagious? What does that, what does that actually mean? Uh, yeah, so this is a great question. So this occurs on a molecular level. So the virus is coated with uh, a protein called a spike protein. So it yep. looks like a little okay. ball with pins in it, right? And so the spike proteins are the pins. And so the pins have to then enter the cell. Uh, they enter kind of, you know, the bloodstream or the nasal, actually really the nasal, the nasal, pa uh, nasal passages. And then they basically they have this uh, receptor that then binds this thing called the ACE2 receptor on the surface of the cell. Uh, before that, there is two cleavage events that actually the protein has to be cleaved in a certain uh, certain way in order for the virus to attach to the receptor and then enter uh, its target cell. Uh, the idea, the S protein is like a key, right? So you have a key, and then the door, is, the door and the lock is the cell, and so it has to use its key in order to get put it uh, get it to order to open the door and infect and kill and replicate in that cell. Um, so when you have mutations in that S protein that allow it to bind tighter or stick on, on the surface of a cell better or adhere better or slip and allowing the virus to move more dynamically through diffusion to inject its, uh, its, its basically wrapped nucleic, uh, nucleic acid around nucleocapsid and shell into the cell, uh, that allows it to be more uh, contagious because it's able to uh, you know, hold on to its target cell or even infect more cells. Um, and so that's how mutation, a natural process in RNA viruses, uh, allow it to become more contagious. Now, viruses, we think of them as like one thing. We think even this B117 variant as one thing. It is not. You are infected with a population of viruses. So you might, and when we sequence these things, we're looking at um, the most abundant uh, viruses the most abundant uh, genetic information. Now there are, you know, small variations within that population. You're basically infected with a city, right? And so if one of those members of that population becomes better at, you know, in replicating itself, it can overtake a variation in a single person and become a new variant. And so, and then it has to spread on a population level. So uh, mutation is just part of evolution. It's just part of natural change. This one uh, has a proofreading enzyme, which allows it to be more, more stable and less, uh, it'll have a less mutation spectrum than something like HIV, for example. Um, uh, but that mutation is, you know, it's this process of random mutation and selection. So if you had, you know, a bin and, a rubber ball and the rubber ball was trying to bounce itself into the bin, right? If the rubber ball was more sticky <laughs> and it would stick to the bin better when you threw it, that then you had, you would want more of those sticky balls to throw into the bin, right? 
And this is the exact way that mutations and evolution work. This is, is perfectly explaining uh, viruses to us. Sticky balls and bins. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, if, you know, if you were, you had these bins and you were throwing, you know, different color, different balls into the bins, um, you would want, you know, if a ball, you know, nine out of 10 goes into that bin better, you'd want that ball. Right. And so that's, that's how evolution works is that it's this <laughs> random chance and it's random in its way to, uh, find, uh, you know, to find, uh, the best candidate. You know, if the ball, every time if you had a ball that every time you threw it into the bin, it bounced out, that's, you're not going to want to use that ball anymore. So that's, that's how evolution works. So that, that one that was sticky, that would stick to the bottom of the bin would be a ball that would be more successful. It would be able to, let's say this ball can replicate itself and then it replicates itself in the bin. And then you would have more of these balls into the bin. Mm -hmm. So just an example. You said you were a professor, right? <laughs> yes, I am. Perfect. I, 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 I've I, never had that explained so well. Mm -hmm. That I actually understand, like actually understand it. Yeah. Normally, I'm just, I just say yes and pretend that I kind of get it. Yeah. But that was yeah amazing. Well done. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I I try to I try to you know I try to be a good scientific communicator. I try to I follow, like I said I follow Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse yeah. and I I I focus on trying to explain it because if I can't explain it to anybody, then I'm not explaining. It. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, um, and that goes back to my original part, my original thesis statement of this whole conversation is that we have to be better at communicating complex uh, processes to everyone, mm -hmm. and so that they can be can become more educated, and they can come out and ask more questions, and they can learn. Because I think that we can. The only way to defeat ignorance is through education. And through knowledge and i think knowledge is can cut through can cut you know cut through ignorance like you know a knife through hot butter but we have to give people the we have to give people the the the, the butter knife in order to go through that hot butter and that is through knowledge yeah so the brazilian variant i had a coffin fit have we yeah, talked yeah. about that yet we have not okay i had a coffin fit so i had to leave uh, so I missed part. Of it. I only caught you at the end of that there. Uh, so the Brazilian variant is that more uh, contagious as well, or is that more deadly, as, or is it pretty much the same? We uh, don't know as much about the Brazilian variant. There has been a paper that has pushed out. Uh, it does have uh, several mutation of biological importance, uh, such as the N501Y, um, the E485K. The uh, it's been identified. Uh, it's it's been found it was originally found in brazil but it's now in japan and other areas but we don't know enough about its pathogenicity yet it is a separate lineage off the b1128 um which we have found you know elsewhere um and so we don't really have you know this these things are happening very very fast uh, we know this variant exists um we know uh, we know where to place it in, you know, in kind of an evolutionary history and kind of the evolution of, of the virus, but we do not know enough about its pathogenicity or contagiousness yet. Um, and anyone that says they know everything about it <laughs> probably doesn't. So we just, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and these things, 
that we have a lot now is we put these things out in preprint, which is good. It disseminates the information, but the preprint, uh, which is not peer reviewed, uh, tends to not get all the details down. And the news media then uh, takes it as status quo, and it's not necessarily yeah, right. been validated yet. So, uh, you know, the dominant one that we see all over the world uh, is this variant called B six one fourteen G, and that's kind of the you know the dominant variant that we're seeing. Uh, we're you know obviously we've evolved in this new strain, this B one one seven, which the uh, America CDC say well, could be the dominant variant by March. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if we, you know, we hope, and we know that the vaccine, at least the Pfizer vaccine, has been tested against uh, the B117, and it's shown to be potentially effect, uh, effective against it. Again, this is preprint; it does need to go through peer review. Um, the P1 is potentially worrisome because it has the, you know, the one uh, uh, mutation, uh, you know, N501Y, um, which allows for more, you know, more. Uh, make it more contagious to bind the, the cells better uh, that we also see in the South African variant. Um, and, you know, as we have been said, that it's 50% more transmissible, the B117. Okay. Uh, the, the worry is, is that both the South African and the P1 variant have the E484K, which is a variant in the S protein, which allows uh, the escape of monoclonal antibodies. So what does that mean? So uh, again, this is the pin, the key, if you will, that opens the door to the cell. And that, uh, that variant uh, basically allows, uh, part, uh, allows that where the antibody that normally would bind to it and block it from entering the door, uh, that mutation allows escape so that it can actually okay. open the door still. And so, uh, you know, in the case of monoclonals that have been tested and serum that have been tested from patients with natural infection. Now, we don't know whether, you know, because when you make a vaccine to the S protein, like with, in the case of the mRNA vaccine, as well as the Oxford vaccine, which, you know, from a single, from a single protein, we assume that you get more diversity of antibody response and that this escape mutation may not be as problematic, um, but more testing needs to be done. Again, covered perfectly. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. I like that uh, mutations also get names. I don't know if I don't know if that's mutations that already exist and it's like a it's like a Well that's a good a point. Utility belt. Like yeah. it's specific things that you need and then you've just gave them a name and then that mutation happens in specific viruses or whether they found a specific thing in a virus. And decided to name it. So it goes. It goes. So we te they tested the vaccine in trials, and there I think there was a PNAS paper, uh, pre uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where they tested a lot of these variants against the vaccine, and sh back in August. Um, do they now some of these new variants have multiple va uh, mutations on top? But they and they tested single variants and showed that it was it was effective. And I. Uh, you know, again, it's my belief, but this may come to haunt me later on this podcast, is that I, you know, trust that the current vaccines, if we get them into, into, the, into the bodies of people with two doses as soon as possible, that the numbers will drop so dramatically that these new variants won't be a problem. 
as well, uh, Merck uh, was also doing a vaccine trial. They had recently, um, it had recently failed. Uh, it's more of a traditional approach where you have a deactivated virus and it didn't really work. However, they are working on multi -ant multiple antibodies. And so part of my group is to build new antibodies. We have whole classes of drugs uh, for antibiotics, whole classes, you know, that target all these different things. In HIV, we defeated HIV, we're defeating HIV, we haven't defeated it completely. <laughs> Hopefully, eventually we will. We've defeated HIV by antibodies. We've attacked that virus through this thing called heliactive retroviral therapy, where we attack every part of the virus. We should do the same for coronavirus and flu. And we should be in the business of eradicating viruses, eradicating diseases. Um, we've only eradicated two viruses in the history of the world. And that was smallpox um, back, in, uh, back in 1980. But that took a global response. Everyone yeah. got vaccinated, uh, we and we eliminated it. And most of the people that were born, I'm one of these people, had never seen smallpox. Smallpox in the last decade of its existence killed over 300 million people. Right? Okay, this uh, we are lucky that my generation, past 1980, uh, have never seen this virus. This virus had been around uh, for at least 5,000 years, potentially longer. And so uh, we've only eradicated one. The other one we eradicated was this thing called, uh, was basically called cow measles. It was basically a paramyx of virus that infects cows, and it's called rinderpest, and that is gone. It's been eradicated. But we need to, we're very close uh, to eradicating polio. Uh, it's a virus that, you know, no natural polio has been found in Africa. There is the vaccine-derived polio, which can, you know, re, you know, kind of reanimate itself and infect people, but Natural polio uh, is believed to be extinct in uh, Africa. Oh. Uh, however, we need to, it, it is reservoir in other places, and so we need to eradicate it. And I think that if we had antivirals, and we only have like about five that I can name off the top of my head. We have remdesivir, uh, Tamiflu, all these kinds of things. And so we need to have whole drug classes of antivirals. And I think that's where synthetic biology can come in, is that we build uh, synthetic molecules or or proteins you know there's a lot of these antibiotic uh antibody antibody type drugs like abcella out of out of british columbia uh that are actually making monoclonal antibody blends to actually go after these virus. but i think we need to be careful obviously with these things because it could it could potentially uh create resistance and so we need to attack viruses at all parts of the replication cycle rendezivir uh actually is a it was originally uh you worked out for Ebola and now has been moved to have, it actually has multiple inhibiting effects of the RNA dependent RNA polymerase. You're like, what is that? So that is the protein that the virus encodes in order to replicate itself. So it has to have that protein. If it doesn't have that protein, you don't replicate itself. It doesn't replicate itself. The most benefit is that the host doesn't make that protein. So you have very little, um, at least not the viral version. You have very little of that protein. Uh, you have, that's, that protein is very specific and it's a great target. So we should be tackling that. We should be tackling the fusion of the virus. And so we should be attacking the virus with all these different antivirals. And we should be in the process of where we have these antivirals online. And then that gives us time to build a vaccine. And then we can, we can wipe it off the face of the planet. I would love to have a trophy room of all the dead viruses and pathogens <laughs> we've eradicated from this planet. That <laughs> you would know? definitely be incredible. Uh, you know, and we have to do something. And so... Another part of my lab that we're focusing on now is the sleeping giant pandemic, and that is multidrug resistant back, uh, uh, organisms in mainly bacteria, but they're also fungi as well. 
mainly in plants. Um, you know, I lost my own mother to a multi-drug resistant organism. Uh, this, uh, the WHO predicts that over 10 million people a year will die by 2050 from multi-drug resistant organisms. Uh, there is a new type of, uh, I believe, gonorrhea uh, that is completely multi-drug resistant. It has no, no, you, you get this gonorrhea, there is no antibiotic when you get it. Nothing. So the idea that people are starting to think about is an old idea, <laughs> which is taking a virus that kills bacteria, known as a bacteriophage, to actually go off and kill these multi-drug resistant bacteria. And so I think that we will see, because of synthetic biology and because of synthetic virology, this idea of building vir going, to, going into natural ecosystem, finding viruses, modifying them to kill multi-drug resistant bacteria. And these, these viruses, uh, these bacteriophage, there's more bacteriophage in your mouth than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So we have a tremendous library of viral material that we can use computationally and synthetically to eliminate something like Staph aureus or MRSA uh, from causing uh, multi-drug resistant disease in people. And so we can use a virus to kill another pathogen that has that basically is our friend. Uh, the reason we even breathe today is that there's a good portion of, not a, it's a significant but not huge amount of portion of our oxygen that is virally mediated. Uh, there's a virus that infects uh, cyanobacteria. These are like blue-green algae is what they used to be called uh, in the ocean. And it infects the cyanobacteria. It cranks up primary productivity uh, through its own viral photosystem, its own photosynthetic machinery, in order to make new nucleic acids. So there could be a portion of the oxygen that we breathe that is viral. So, um, nice. you know, yeah. I love the fact that uh, it's worth knowing about these things. To be fair, yeah. No, I, I'm just I, I can't I cannot believe in such a small amount of time there's so many things that I had no idea existed. <laughs> As three minutes has passed and you have been completely skilled. Yeah, I, I mean a thousand things that I didn't know existed are in my head now. Put it in perspective, like the availability of how I think, you know, we had phage point one. So phage point uh, 1.0 was, you know, led to sequencing. It led to innovations in next-gen sequencing that led to the completion of the human genome. And that all started at phage. Uh, if you look at Luria and Fleming back in the day of antibiotics, uh, Luria predicted a phage biologist, a T4 phage biologist, predicted all the antibiotic resistance. And there's back and forth in the 1930s, going back and forth, and within... Two years of releasing penicillin, you had resistant penicillin, or you had organisms that were resistant to penicillin. And the reason yeah. for that is that the antibiotics are bactericidal; uh, they're bacteriostatic, not bactericidal. So they don't they don't kill all the way a lot of the time, and so some escape. And because they escape, they can evolve to withstand that antibiotic, right? And uh, Julian Davies' work at a UBC, uh, you know, he was in my department when I did my PhD. I uh, spent his whole career, I think over 50 years, looking at when I take an antibiotic, sub-inhibitory amounts of that antibiotic uh, go through my metabolism and then go back out into wastewater streams. And then those wastewater streams can get back into the environment and then basically vaccinate bacteria against these things that we use to defeat them. Uh, but we need to not wait. <laughs> you know, there was a paper back in 07 that basically said that, you know, the spillover and the potential of the pandemic uh, SARS-like virus is very high. 
and it's it's a it's a time bomb. That's what they described it back in the '70s. Here we are today, here in 2021, where uh, over 400,000 Americans have pa passed away from COVID-19. Uh, that's more than the entire U.S. casualty death of four years of World War II uh, in the course of a year, mm -hmm. from the first case that happened back in January 20, uh, 21st, 2020. Um, we cannot wait with uh, multi-drug resistant organisms. We cannot wait to control uh, flu, which has also major pandemic potential. We cannot wait until uh, something out of the measles family comes, you know, something like tender Nipah virus become a pandemic virus. And we cannot wait on climate change anymore. We cannot. We must invest broadly in all of these things. Um, uh, you know, because every species, you know, I've studied the origin of life with uh, viruses and stuff like microbial mass and stromatolites, and most species don't make it. <laughs> like, they just don't through time. If you look at four billion years of evolution, most species don't make it, right? And so uh, we are on the precipice of an abyss if we do not invest broadly in STEM and mitigation factors. And not only that, that these factors will not will boost our economy uh, and all the global economy. Yeah. Uh, at one point, NASA had 11% of the federal budget during the space race. And what came of that? The internet, uh, cell phone technology, yeah. computers, the thing we're talking on today, all products of the, the space race. And so again, it comes back to investing broadly in our scientists and broadly in our engineers, our mathematicians, as well uh, the acknowledging the people that are, you know, that make our daily life possible. Um, you know, the essential workers, as we call them, giving them, you know, a path towards uh, a reasonable life. Yeah. So, yeah. Definitely. I, I think you've covered pretty much everything there. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Should we cover some of the, the questions? I that think, we've got? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Before, before we let you go, Richard, we have a few questions from people. If that's okay to go through them. I think they're mostly. Sure. No, absolutely. Based. Yeah. That's what I'm here for. Awesome, man. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, do you want to go? I'm going to go first. Um, I have a question here from Claire Mack. Um, I want to know uh, if studies show old blood types are less affected uh, with lesser effects than others, especially rhesus negatives. Uh, yeah. So this one comes up a lot. Um, and so this comes from a paper that was published about uh, O versus A blood types. Yeah. Um, now there is a correlation between, and there's a positive correlation between type O positive versus, uh, you know, A or B or vice versa. Now this is a correlation um, that basically points to either disease severity or um, changes in the disease. Now we don't have a biochemical mechanism on how that would work. And so uh, personally, the jury is still out because you can have uh, you can have correlation that really doesn't mean anything, right? Um, and so we need a mechanism on why that would be. Why, why you know, if you had a different, uh, you know, if you were O or A, why you would have uh, a different outcome with something like COVID-19. And, and I'm, I'm going to think in the future that it probably is not going to mean anything. But it doesn't matter. Uh, that's my thing. But the jury is still out. Okay. Uh, I have a question from Francesca. And she's sure. asking sort of a, a two-parter question. It's about uh, 
the effect of the new COVID vaccines on a uh, fertility of women and sort of how it'll affect how how it will affect birth control and uh, if that could be long term. She's a uh, she's specifically worried because of the thalidomide ah. issue. So this one has come up again as another false thing that the vaccine causes infertility issues and stuff like this. Uh, this is all complete nonsense. There is no evidence uh, that any vaccine causes infertility. Um, and most treatments for, you know, uh, making someone, uh, you know, you have tubal ligation or you have vasectomies is a surgery, right? So if, the, if there was any pill or vaccine or shot that would give you, uh, would, would not allow you to get pregnant, that would be a a decent thing, right? Because normally the practice is done through surgery, but there is no evidence that any vaccine causes any kind of issue with fertility. Okay. So that's a complete no. Okay. Comes down around a lot. There's uh, a pseudoscience thing out there with anti-vaxxers saying that it, it it's like a it's like a reverse retrovirus. It's just all kinds of nonsense, but it's not. Okay. Um, hold on, um, how many have you got? Uh, three. Okay, right. I'll just do this one. Yeah. Okay, this is from uh, Lauren Jones. Uh, this is a bit of a long one. I'll try and do it quickly. Um, I caught COVID at the end of December, and it recently came out on the news that they reckon I'll have around 85% immunity for five months, but can still carry and transmit the virus. As I understand, uh, as I understand it, this is where I'm possibly wrong. The vaccine works by priming the body to recognise the protein in the virus so it can fight it off quicker. I think that that's how immunity works after you've had the virus as well. So will the vaccine only work for five months as well? Uh, I realise the answer to this is probably no, but I'd be keen to understand why. So um, what is interesting about these viruses is that natural affection doesn't give you a lot of immunity. Okay. At least that's the thought. Now, it, it's going back, it goes back and forth, but we need more studies. Uh, on this, whether natural immunity, and, uh, you know, because we had the we were very good documented cases where a person had gotten one strain of COVID and uh, three or four months later, well, actually SARS-CoV-2, not COVID, they got COVID, but they got one strain of SARS-CoV-2 and then a couple months later, they got reinfected with another virus that was similar. I mean, they got, I mean, it's the same, you know, they're, diff they're small differences between the two, but they got reinfected. Um, and so as far as the vaccine is concerned, um, we all need to get it <laughs> as soon as possible. Um, and then the second thing is um, we need more data on whether um, the vaccine protects you not only from infection, but also from transmission. And so the thought is, is that we, it, it should, but we need hard data in order to confirm that. And so, the general hypothesis is like is this is that if I have a strong adaptive immune response and I'm able to inhibit the virus where it doesn't really replicate, where I don't have symptoms, or it's so low, right, that I don't make a lot of virus, right? And so if I don't make a lot of virus, the ability for that virus to transfer is very, very low. But we need hard data to show that one way or the other. And so to answer two things. No, no effective on fertility at all. And then second, uh, the jury is still out on whether uh, you can get infected with the vaccine and transfer it to others. 
and the hypothesis is theoretically yes, but if you're not, but if you need a certain amount, of, and this is the other thing, in order to have a robust infection with this virus, you need a certain number of viruses that infect. Like if you get infected with, you know, five, probably not going to get sick. Now, if you get infected with 10 billion of them, <laughs> when someone or 100 billion of them, when someone sneezes on you, then you have a good chance of getting. The, the, will the protection or the virus or the vaccine protect you from something like that happening? Absolutely. Uh, now, if you have a mask on, you wash your hands, you're wearing your PPE, uh, you know, if you're wearing like goggles or a face mask or, you know, vice versa, and you're vaccinating, the, the likelihood of you transmitting, uh, giving it to someone else is basically it's close to zero. The, the funny so thing was that's that... why. Go ahead. Sorry, that is the first time I've actually had, like, I've heard a lot of people talking about when they. When it gets transferred, you're putting in the air um, a few droplets, like a bunch of droplets. But I heard ten billion there, 100, so there's a hundred, a hundred billion sort of thing. So that's the first time I've heard the number actually come from somebody. Right. I, oh, I mean, you know, you're. I mean, someone that's infected is making, and they can be completely asymptomatic. Yeah. Right. Where there's no real symptom because there's something inherent in their genet in their genes or microbiome for that matter. The bacteria and viruses live in their body that make it to where they don't they don't uh, have symptoms. And there are people that probably walking around right now today that are 100% resistant. That's, that's... Where, I mean, this happens in every pathogen. Uh, the classic example of this is uh, the Romani people in, in the, with the Black Death or Yersinius pestis, where they are, a large portion of them are naturally resistant to the Black Death. But they make no adaptive immune response. And vaccination for Yersinia pestis, of making a vaccine for Yersinia pestis, basically failed. Uh, the mutation that the Romani people have activates the innate immune system through toll-like receptors that recognize uh, the Yersinia pestis gram-negative bacteria faster, so it allows for your innate immune system to overwhelm it and defeat it before it becomes a reservoir in their body. And there are, without a doubt, people out there, we don't, we don't know this yet, that will have natural resistance uh, to this virus. And, you know, part of what we're doing now is trying to figure that out and why they have natural resistance. Because even people with HIV, there are other people that are elite suppressors. Uh, and, they, and there's a common example of this is there's this Delta 32 deletion of the co-receptor. And they are, part, they are if they're homozygous, they are, they are partially resistant to HIV. So we will find these mutations and naturally occurring in people. The host, uh, this process called Red Queen, for both the virus and the human and the host, in the case of in our case, the human and virus, have to evolve at the same rate, otherwise they both cease to exist. And so they evolve. So the minute a virus comes up with a new variant, the host will also come up with a way to defeat it. It's it, it's it's natural course of course of evolution. Uh, <laughs> this one's from Ron. In their typical work day, do they need to spend much of their time debating the value of their work and the veracity of vaccines? Hmm. I don't really know how to answer that one. <laughs> Say that one again. <laughs> do you spend a lot of your day having to defend how effective uh, vaccines are, basically? Uh... A, a, not a lot, but I do spend a little time on it every day. <laughs> yes, I do. I mean, I think uh, a lot of us out there are in the scientific community are having to uh, dispel pseudoscience and misinformation. I think I think it's become part of our ethos now. 
That's very sad. That is very sad, definitely. Um, We have a a question here from Steve Chalmers. Can you ask him if you've... uh, So, if you've already had COVID and are now apparently immune, why would you need the vaccine and what what protects you more? Catching the virus or getting the vaccine? Vaccine. 100%. One hundred percent. Yeah. Go. Next question. <laughs> that was really easy. Uh, and so, uh, you know, natural infection, uh, and there's a, the potentially a very probably a Nobel Prize in there somewhere about how these viruses mess with the immune system, mm-hmm. and how that we don't gain memory potentially from natural infection, and that goes a lot of these viruses that were even flu. Like, how do you not gain? You know, why do we have to take a vaccine every couple of months, every couple of weeks, every year? It's because the, the the virus mutates out of uh, an effective vaccine. And so we have to take a new, we have to, you know, and that vaccine for that year works perfect on those variants and those strains, right? But then the next year, because these things mix in birds and animals and you get recombination and small mutations, that we need slightly, a slightly different uh, vaccine cocktail. Now with the new mRNA cocktails, uh, and new technologies that we've developed in COVID-19, I think that we might get to a point where we might have a universal flu spike from this. And if you've noticed, by you know wearing masks and washing your hands and uh, social distancing, our flu, uh, our flu, da- our flu has gone down massively. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so I hope we normalize, uh, at least in the United States, maybe in Europe as well, is that. If you feel sick, stay home, right? If you can, and then if you have to go to work and you feel sick, wear a mask. Yeah, you know, I'm uh, quite happy to continue. Asia does this very well. Asia, like in Japan and you know China, when they feel sick, they wear masks. Yeah, or they stay home. And you know, I I wonder now, even when I you know you know when I got caught the flu and I I I tried to stay home as much, but you know there was a time where I would go to work, and I I regret that now that I should have stayed home or I should have worn a mask. Yeah, I've done you know, it a few times myself. Um, you know, I think we all have. And I think this has been a, a thing that I hope we normalize. Uh, washing hands, not shaking hands, you know. I, I like the elbow bump. That's kind of the Roman way they used to do it. It looks elbow. cool now. It looks cool now. Yeah, it looks cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you bump elbows instead of shaking hands. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and, and we should be, you know, if you're sick, stay home if you can. And we need to, I think it is also really open the eyes of people that there's a lot of people that are really essential to keep things going and we should give them a wage that they can live on. Yes. You know what's been <laughs> you know? Absolutely. <laughs> Minimum wage shop workers especially. Yeah, definitely. And you know what? Dismissed, dismissed all the time for not having a real job or mm-hmm. for not ha- I'm smarter than you because I've got a college degree you're just working in a no, shop. You see, that sort of stuff. We have to also normalise the culture there too. We have, I mean, because, yeah. you, know, you know, when I was growing up everybody smoked. Right, everybody smoked. Everyone smoked cigarettes. Everybody, you know, had chewing tobacco and all that. I don't see anybody doing that. And we didn't really necessarily ban cigarettes. What we did is we changed the culture. Yeah. And we said, oh, it's gross. It's gross. Yeah. Right. Kids <laughs> nowadays, like my 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 daughter's generation is like, oh, gross. You know. Yeah. And if we if you know if we do that with, oh, you're not you're sick, you're not wearing a mask, oh, gross. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And you kind of. You potentially guilt people into doing the right thing, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, uh, you know, and I hope we normalize that behavior of yeah. washing our hands, of, you know, of 
wearing masks when we're sick, staying home, uh, appreciating people that work in the service industry. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife works in the service industry. She runs a bunch of Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the way that they're, you, they, people talk down to people in the service industry and yeah. industries, you know, industries like that. It's disgusting. One thing that's absolutely been, disgusting. One thing that's been great to witness is, and this was almost within the first few days of schools getting closed. Yeah. Almost yeah. within the first few days, there was tons and tons of parents just went, teachers oh my God, people. teachers are amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That took two fucking days yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to get that into people's heads. So th- that was amazing to see. Uh, again, we, you know, uh, we, we suffer with this a lot in the United States where teachers are taking up two or three jobs yeah. or, you know, or they're getting out of it. And we meet, you know, again, it goes back, you know, uh, there's this really epic photo from after um, Hiroshima. And there's a woman on like, a, I think on like a raft, right, in Japan, and she's teaching kids, like the day after, yeah. right? You know, and it's just this most amazing, breathtaking, you know, photo of human perseverance, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that we need to, I, 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 maybe, maybe, you know, I, I think, you know, if we, you know, change the culture socially and we say, look, you know, these people are great and they're essential, you know, mm-hmm. so what if they're working at a, a place that's, you know, they're doing a good thing. They're working, you know, they're doing, you know, and, um, we, you know, it, it's, it's not me better than you. It's we're all in it together, you know? So. That's it. That's my thing. Do you have a final question? Uh, uh, Yeah. Um, I have a final question for me. That's why I want you to get you. I've got three left. Oh, shit. Right. Okay. Uh, I think I could skip that one, though, because that one's kind of been answered. Um, Do you believe that deforestation and the destruction of habitats of bats and possibly other animals has allowed viruses that have been prevalent in them to mutate and be able to affect humans? Or in short, what are your opinions on where this virus... Oh, no, we've answered that. No, we can't answer that already. Well, for sure it came from bats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do I think that if we encroach on wild populations that there's potential for more zoonotic spillover? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we need to... Uh, figure out and surveil better. Um, and potentially, you know, with the technology we have now, we can sequence the entire microbiota and sample these wild bats and look for, uh, and I mean, this was part of the one NIH program that was got kind of politically tied up with our former administration. Um, but we need to surveil these things and we need to also think about vaccinating, uh, potentially vaccinating wild populations. Or surveilling them such that we know and we can forecast such events. Um, but yes, as we encroach on wild habitats and people go into areas that they have not gone before, spillover can happen. Um, this has been known for probably you know at least sixty to seventy years. I mean, Marburg, uh, which is a, a Ebola relative, uh, it, the folks in Germany were in Marburg, Germany, were working on uh, on uh, primates. And there was blood that was spilled, and someone got sick with with Marburg, and they had an outbreak there. They were able to contain it, 
right? Yeah. Um, so it goes back to yes, and we need more. Uh, we need to basically find ways to surveil and potentially even, in certain cases, uh, vaccinate wild animals from from these diseases. This one's from Dave. I think his second name is Echo Says, but that just means Scottish and French. So I don't know if that's his real name. Uh, anyway, his question is that he's he's seen a lot of people making sort of unsubstantiated claims against uh, vaccines and the, the, the damage that they're going to do. Uh, what are some real theoretical risks of the vaccine and how probable are they? I think he's probably referring to the new thing about in Norway, I think, 21 people in a care home. Yeah, died. this yeah, came yeah. out. Yeah, uh, this one's come out. This is one of the newer ones. Um, so as far as hard data, um, the average vaccine, um, this is published in 2019, um, you know, is 1.3 uh, anaphylaxis per, per 1 million vaccines given. So if you look at kind of the classic MMR vaccine, very, very low side effects, no link to autism. We nailed that one a million times uh, into the ground and still people believe it, yep. you know, it's, it's, but there's a lot of stuff like this. It's like this whole thing with like right brain versus left brain. That's all not that. Or that you only use only two percent, 10% of your brain. That's also not. Yeah, I don't you know why that, your brain, obviously nonsense. I don't know why that became yeah, a thing. I'll... You know, I mean, if you only use this 10% of your brain, you know, you're, you would have evolved a smaller brain and they would have gotten rid of all the nonsense. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, you know, smaller head, right? Oh, the extra meat so, just fucking disappeared. Yeah. The rest of the meat. Yeah, that would get that would have gotten cut out probably. Yeah. Um, you know, but you know, or like you know, more you know, there's all kinds of this stuff that just holds on, like you know, that people are more violent under a full moon. Like it's just nonsense. <laughs> just nonsense. And we have to make for you know, or like you know, full moons make people more you know, hostile or freak or more weird or you know, some nonsense like that. You know. Uh, but it's all nonsense, and that's how pseudoscience works. It's just it, it's kind of like a, a chainmail. It kind of builds on itself. Uh, so uh, as far as this thing, there was 23 individuals in Norway that received the vaccine that that died. Uh, however, we don't know if that's due to the vaccine or due to their uh, pre-existing condition uh, because they were over the age of at least 75, and that potential group. Um, they lose over 400 people a week just to, you know, their their current medical condition. Yeah. Yeah. So it's unknown whether the vaccine caused uh, aggravation of of their, you know, current state or disease state they were currently in. Uh, this vaccine, uh, both the MMR vaccine and the both COVID, both the AstraZeneca, both the um, the the mRNA vaccines are very very safe, uh, and then with anaphylaxis we can treat it. Actually, the you're more likely to have anaphylaxis from penicillin than you are from this vaccine. So again, there is this group of people that they are they are biased, and no matter how much evidence you give them because of their extreme confirmation bias. Uh, no matter how much you throw at them, even though we've shown time and time again that Andrew Wakefield is wrong. I mean, and then there are scientists that are grifters that make them money off this. I mean, Andrew Wakefield still goes out and gives seminars about how terrible the MMR vaccine and, he, and, write, and he writes books. And all. So 
there are these kind of professional grifters that do that, yeah. right? And we need to stop them <laughs> from this because misinformation can get people hurt. And, uh, um, you know, again, going back to what happened on January 6th, five people died from misinformation. Mm-hmm. Definitively. So this is the final question. And I, I was thinking of not asking it because it's specific to what's happening here and uh, more specifically with uh, Boris Johnson. He, But I'm going to ask it anyway just because it will be interesting to get your opinion. Um, the English government has stated that it will start to open up within weeks, taking advantage of the vaccine. I presume this means maintaining a high COVID rate. It definitely means pushing up the R for people like me who will not be able to get the vaccine for 9 to 12 months. Any comments on that? Oh boy. I, you know, um, and I may not get lots of love for this, but I think, you know, uh, let's just close it for a bit. Mm. You know, let's, you know, we closed it down when there was not, you know, in our case in the United States, we are having upwards of 150,000 cases a day, right? We closed it when there was not even that amount of cases. So why not just, you know, have two weeks to maybe as much as six weeks um, to, you know, give people, you know, give, have people stay home, pay them, make sure their bills are covered, you know, have them, you know, you know, have them order, you know, stuff, off, you know, like Amazon or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And let's just, you know, like, where are we just give food or whatever to people and, you know, put, you know, homeless in the right place, you know, where they're, you know, they're taken care of. You know, uh, and let's just try to get these numbers down first. You know let's what? Get them down. What's for? What's let's, great is you know, we are doing that. We done that in March. Well, that's what great is. What's great is we actually discussed doing this because I'm in favour, like as much the same as you are, locking the country completely down. The government have the money to be able to offer somebody like I don't know, like a couple of food and vouchers it would be a day. Cheaper than the alternatives that they have put together. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, we're looking at another 1.9 trillion dollar thing now and the idea behind the shutdown and other countries have done really well with this uh the u.s failed in this in spades uh but if you look at a place like taiwan or iceland or new zealand the the shutdown was in order to give medical folks and contract chase uh, t- uh tracers uh time and getting the testing ready to go to where we could test everybody robustly and iceland had it down such to a science that you know, they had like they hired like detectives to go and trace people. You know, and then they would if they were if they were positive, they were they were put in quarantine or they were st- told to stay at home, and and then all the new cases that came up were in quarantine, and then you couldn't you wouldn't it wouldn't spread. Uh, Taiwan also did this very very effectively. Um, you know, personally, I would I I think if we we need to have it robustly funded so people aren't suffering for two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And we have two, at least in the United States, we should have two solid weeks of really not stay at your house two weeks just to get the numbers down. Yeah. The problem that we have in the U.S. is that they don't listen, right? Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, if if people were, you know, it's not a big deal. It's not going to affect me, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of the cases that I see is individuals like, well, I'm not a big deal. I'm young. I'm healthy, blah, blah, blah. I just had a yeah. mild COVID and they go home to their parents. Or the grandparents, and they they die from it. I've seen it so many times. It, you know, as working with the virus and talking to people about it, 
you know, I just want to go see my grandparents and I go see the grandparents and then I get it and they're dead, you know? Um, and it's a trap. It's a huge tragedy. Absolutely huge tragedy. Yeah. Um, I, I have a final question that probably would have well, been I'll have a final for... question as well, but you can. Okay. We have two final questions. That probably would have been a better <laughs> question for Kat, but you're here. So we're going to ask anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know how much you know about about the situation in the UK at the moment, but right now, according to deaths, we are doing worse than the US. We are like top in the world of terrible. We are getting 1,300 people dead a day, and we've got like a quarter of the population, so we're doing really fucking badly. Uh, I don't understand why. The US, I don't think any state... Maybe California has a stay-at-home order, a lockdown as we call it. Uh, but there's nothing across the board. We've had three lockdowns in the UK. Uh, more than that, possibly. Wales have shut down three or four times. England has shut down three times. This is the second time Scotland has locked down. And we are still doing worst. Why? Why the mm. fuck are we still stuck in this shit? When... Uh. A really, it's a really good question. I, oh boy, um, the simple answer: Oxen's razor. People aren't listening. That's yeah. the bottom line. Mm. You know, it is. It, it only takes one person, man. That's the problem. Yeah. You know, and even if you lock it down and if you don't enforce it, um, back in like 1918, uh, India is currently they enforced it pretty pretty heavily. Not as much lately, but there'd be parts where there'd be people just come by and give you a ticket. In, in 1918, if they didn't see you wear a mask. They didn't see you wear a mask and you didn't wear it properly, they gave you a ticket, <laughs> you know? And so, um, again, it, it falls into the United States in the United States. I don't know about UK, but it, in Scotland, but in the United States, it falls into this weird nebulous, of, well, it's my right yeah. to not wear yeah, a mask. Happened, like, yeah. No, it's not. Because uh, if your right infringes on another person's right, it's really not a right, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, you know, and again, what is the root of it? As I've mentioned through the whole thesis statement of this conversation is that it comes back to education. It comes back to fundamental education and also uh, coping mechanisms. I think if we have people learn to cope better with unpredictable situations and answers that don't know unless mm -hmm. in a state of constant panic and fear uh i think uh, but we all struggle with it um myself included um if we have people learn better coping skills um we also have them be more motivated by the common good instead of instead of wealth driven uh, again, a lot of these things I think we have to, like I said, the example with cigarettes, is we have to change the social culture of our society by saying, you know, being a selfish person that doesn't wear a mask is gross, yeah, yeah. you know, and you don't want to be like that person, right? Uh, or And so in the case of your lockdown situation, it is unfortunately the simple answer is uh, people aren't listening. Yeah. They're not listening. And if they're not getting any kind of either some sort of penalty, uh, they will continue not to. But there's been a few, uh, example. three or four hundred people, parties shut down, and they've been given two or three hundred pound fines. But apart from that, like... Yeah, you know, 
Nothing on a small you scale. Know, yeah, you know, uh, I see it all over social media. Um, you know, uh, people going to, they went, you know, they went to uh, Halloween parties. Yeah. And they went to, you know, grandparents or people they hadn't seen and people got sick. The same thing with Thanksgiving. Same thing with Christmas. Same thing with New Year's. Um, you know, I don't know what, I don't know how, I don't know how you convince someone to stay home. It's annoying like because, because it's, it's the same thing we've constantly been talking about since March, or even before I mean, March. We, I mean, we've been talking about this, and I mean, the case that for me, you know, we were I was already isolating right after the Super Bowl because I knew this was going to be a thing, yeah. right, for here. Um, but we should have been wearing masks in the United States back in January. Yeah, we right. Should... Like we and you know we learned some. I mean, and this thing is by far more infectious than any seasonal flu strain we've seen. Curious. Um, you know, because what we're doing to mitigate COVID is actually shutting the seasonal flu down almost completely. Yeah, so, we've had 400 um, flu deaths and we normally have about 18,000. Is that yeah. since March? 400. Yeah. Last year, I mean, the biggest one we had in the United States, I think, was like 60,000 back in 2017. Um, if you took all the 10 years of flu, um, we still wouldn't have had what we had with COVID. Yeah. Uh, again, we've lost more people. If you combine every war uh, from Korea to Vietnam, all the ones that we've had in the United States, and you, you, and you include World War One, we've had double the amount of death Jeez. in this year. I never put that. If we include, yeah, if we include just the, just the civil, we we passed the Civil War and we passed World War Two, which is the most deadliest conflict in the history of the United States and the world, for that matter. Yeah, we need to we need uh, to get you and Joe Rogan, Richard. Yes, this is what we need to happen next. <laughs> I would debate him any day of the week. I would, any day of the week I would tackle it. This would be I'm so debating. good because I'm sick of having. I'm I will. I will. I honestly, honestly, I will debate anybody you put in front of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, I'd be more than happy to do that. Um, Let's go crazy uh, on Twitter, Richard. We'll go, go fucking crazy on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, the, the normal step is everybody <laughs> Joe Rogan has used to be on our podcast. And so as a general... Yeah, I'm more than happy to debate any anti-science, anti-vaxxer any day of the week. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> okay, so I had one last but question. I had one more question. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. And, and this is... There's no such thing I as a silly question. I question, but... Okay. Uh, my final question was, basically, um, we we caught COVID in, would you say, like, early October? I'm fucking caught on my cables, hang on. <laughs> we had, we, we managed to both get COVID. Uh, we live in the same house. It was oh, wow. kind of obvious that we were going to get it. Yeah. Uh, well, at least passed to each other. We knew that was going to happen. But um, I think it... it we sort of lost our uh, sense of taste and taste uh, sense of smell and stuff like that as yeah. well. Um, quite That's heavily. the big one. That's yeah. the one that is like that. You know, now does it happen in flu and other viruses? Yes, but is it rare? Absolutely. This yeah. virus is. If you were gonna, you know, you know, kind of the classic movie from the United States is like uh, Home Alone, where the burglars like steal everything in the house and then they they leave the sinks on, so it floods the house and they call themselves yeah. the wet bandits. You know, <laughs> uh, the this virus, its calling card is the loss of taste. Yeah. That is dead ringer. If you randomly lost your taste and smell uh and then uh that is most likely this virus 
Well, that was, um, we we didn't realize how serious it was, and I'll get a, I'll finish this question quickly. Um, we yeah. what's happened to me is uh the and I think it has something to do with the COVID, but I have nothing to back this up, so I'm just going to say it and see what goes. I managed to stop smoking almost like huh. I think it was a few weeks after I actually lost the sense and the sense of taste and everything like that from COVID. Um, I don't know if that has happened to anybody else. I've not not heard any stories. Yet. I don't know. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. I that's a good one. I I have seen. Uh, so I'll give you a perfect example. I had a friend who got it, you know, early on and uh, didn't notice anything, right? Mm-hmm. And then his wife made him some very spicy chili because he likes he likes spicy. Yeah. You know. Uh. You know. And he kept telling his wife like it's not spicy enough. Bring him the Damasco. <laughs> right and he pours on more and more tobacco wow. and his mouth and his wife is like well your mouth is blistering yeah right and he he realized that he had lost his taste and smell and and some people they get it back right away and then other people haven't mm-hmm. um and so it has something to do with the reception and disruption of uh olfactory receptors uh in the brain when it when it infects potentially uh there's a decent paper that we reviewed uh, a while ago about this, but it's a dead ringer for this virus. Um, and you see like challenges on like TikTok and YouTube where people will do like different drinks, right? And the girl is trying to do drinks and it gets to milk and she's like, oh, it's flavorless, but you know, chalky or flavorless and uh, thick or something yeah. like that, <laughs> you know? And I, you know, or people like burning an orange, you know, you're supposed to supposedly burn an orange and if you can't smell that, you're in trouble. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and we, uh, the other thing that people talk a lot about, uh, which we don't talk enough about is, uh, you know, there are people that, you know, recovery isn't recovery, right? A lot of people say, well, you're recovered, right? But recovery can mean, mean everything from double lung transplant <laughs> to uh, permanent uh, damage of the lung or the kidney or it's a multi, uh, you know, or blood clotting. Uh, the one actor who eventually died from COVID had serious blood clots and had to have one of his uh, limbs removed. Uh, Jeez. And so we will have a generation of people that are without uh, individuals that have perished from this virus. Uh, so there'll be a huge bereavement, obviously. Uh, the other thing is that there will be people that are permanently disabled, from this, unfortunately. Mm. And we can't just say, oh, they're recovered and back to normal. Um, and as well, there's a lot of these things like long COVID where people have symptoms long, six months later, there was a paper that was just published out of China where people had at least one of the symptoms six months later, uh, you know, and so this is unlike anything you've seen, um, before, uh, to where you'll have potentially damage downstream and we need to mitigate that. Uh, a lot of it, uh, with what we're working on is trying to look at, uh, the gut microbiota's role in this whole thing. And so if you could, you know, disturb the gut microbiota, you lead to some other inflammatory state, which causes problems. And so we're trying to think about ways that if that's true, then we can mitigate uh, the dysbiosis by supplementing with probiotics or, you know, phage therapy or something like that. And so um, that's where we're at. So, so annoyingly, I've become like a positive COVID story, which is really irritating to me. Yeah, what seems to have happened to you is your taste and smell went away, and then it came back hating the taste of cigarettes. Well, that's good. Like, um, like even during like when we had COVID, yeah. I was starting to go off them at the time, and I knew it was because of the sense of taste and smell at the time. But 
Mm. Um, once the COVID went away, I was like, I felt like I got it back a little bit. But um, it's been three months since then. And I just today, um, sneakily, <laughs> thought I'd go to the shop and try a cigarette. Yeah. And uh, it, I, I can't go back. It, it tastes disgusting. What's well, scary? I... It's unfortunate you got COVID, but I would recommend a not smoking. Yeah, 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 yeah. so much better. Yeah. What scared me is uh, I had no idea that there was this big kidney issue. I was born with only one kidney, so finding out that there's such a big uh, issue with kidney problems after COVID kind of shut me up a little bit. I can't lie. Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen it's a multi, you know the ACE two receptor uh, is on most cells. Uh, what's also interesting about uh, so there's a, there's receptor and then there's the protease that's near the receptor that cleaves the the SARS that, that cleaves the S protein uh, in order for it to you know because basically think of it as like the the spike protein on the surface of the virus is kind of like an uncut key, and so something in the body actually cuts the key perfectly. Uh, and that's called the protease. And in order, and, you know, basically, you know, if the door is, the room is the cell, the door is the receptor, uh, and the virus, the, the spike protein is basically the key. But it has to be cut by, by a protease, the key, the key uh, cutter, before it can enter, right? Yeah. And so there are people that have mutations in that, in that uh, protease that are not only resistant to coronavirus, but they are also resistant to certain types of prostate cancer. And actually, 85% of people that get prostate cancer have uh, a weird mutation in that gene, right? Again, um, we will we will have to learn more about people that uh, have mutations that make them resistant. Because if we, you know, figure that out, we can design drugs around um, around that uh, as well. Bats bats are a fantastic will be a fantastic tool for us to understand. And we believe that bats carry all these viruses because they have to fly. And so they have to turn down their immune system, right? Because flight makes all kinds of free radicals, all kinds of damaging free radical molecules. And so if they were in a constant state of inflammation, uh, they would get cancer and have all kinds of problems. So bats dial down uh, their their uh, immune system, allowing them to fly. But then it also has allowed them to carry all kinds of virus. You can have a bat infected with, you know, SARS-CoV-2, uh, SARS-1, uh, Nipah, you know. I mean, it's amazing, the, the, the capability of this virus yeah. in bats. But the bats don't have disease, or at least it doesn't look like they're very sick. Because the inflammation, actually, and the inflammatic response is what causes the damage. A uh, perfect example of this is in like polio. Uh, the immune system wipes out polio really quickly. But when polio hides out in the autonomic nerve system, it also wipes out those nerves. And so people are bound to like iron lungs and they're paralyzed, right? And so same thing happens in COVID, where the infection gets going, the immune system goes for the scourged earth type of hypo uh, thing with neutrophilic attack. And then you get all this buildup of fluid in the lower lung and you basically drown. In your in your own fluid, um, and so if we can learn from bats and dial down and learn how to modulate uh, the immune system, uh, we might be able to have all kinds of viruses and not even know it, or even be able to care. Right? 
because they don't cause disease. Um, and so I think host response and as well, antivirals, and of course, vaccine, but we should be in the process of eradicating diseases and we should be, it should be, a, it shouldn't be a debate on whether we, we keep these diseases or not. It should be, yes, we will give money to eradicate these diseases, period. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, man. Well, Richard, Say it again. Richard I, I want to thank you for coming on. That's been much appreciated, man. Oh, it's very welcome. Anytime. I'd love to come back. Uh, but yeah, no, I'd love to, I'd love to come back uh, when we have more cool data to tell you about or mm-hmm. those kind of things. Uh, it's been a pleasure meeting both of you guys. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I hope you guys feel better with your COVID. Um, yeah. You know, maybe in the future, there'll be a therapy that, you know, we'll be able to provide to people that will help people feel better. Uh, mm-hmm. Or even screen people that have had COVID-19 susceptibility. I think that's the other thing. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, for people that are listening, what we'll try and do is, if you want to share the podcast, you have to tag in Joe Rogan to the podcast as well. That's the best way to go about that. <laughs> I also want to admit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of self-promoting as well. Uh, you can follow me at your friendly at your uh, neighborhood virologist on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're welcome to, you know, we're going to try to make some videos on there. Uh, for people to look at for COVID. And so I'll, I'll say it again, but at Neighborhood Virologist on TikTok, and you can follow me there. And of course, uh, you can, uh, you know, we're welcome to have answers or questions 